Hello listeners, my name is Casey, host of the Cult Vault podcast, a long-format interview-based show that focuses on cults, high-demand groups, captive organisations and more. Each week, I interview a different cult survivor who brings a story of coercion and exploitation along with their own fight for freedom. With nearly 200 survivor interviews from all over the world, you can also find deep dives into infamous cults, interviews with leading experts in the field, and understand more about how cults exist all around us and none of us are safe. Each month, I feature a different author on the show who has penned a compelling memoir about their cult experiences, which we discuss at length on the show, with copies of their books available to listeners. You will never be short of insightful and moving content here at the Cult Vault Podcast, available on all major platforms. Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I am super excited to be talking to Benny Koshis. We've been talking about getting together for, I don't know, I think at least two years. I don't know, Benny, I don't know why we haven't done this before. So welcome to our Ship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Finally. <laughs> Finally. I don't know why. Yeah. Not only that, because we talked, obviously, about getting together a while ago, but then it turns out that you live near my sort of hometown in the Seattle, Washington area. So that's another little interesting sort of sideline, isn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful here. Yeah, it is. Like terrain wise, very beautiful <laughs> yeah. place. Yeah, yeah. That's true. I haven't been back to the Seattle area. I was back there a lot about, well, before COVID, really. I made a bunch of trips back there. So, yeah, I did a lot of work down in the area you live. So, yeah, it is a very small world, isn't it? Even though I'm over here at the yes. UK now. Yeah, absolutely. It's so cool. When you said you grew up here, I was like, oh my God, that's wild. Yeah. 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 Probably half an hour or 40 minutes from where you're at now. So yeah, very small world. I went to high school, Christian school. See, I was I was in the whole Christian movement. That's my background. Very fundamentalist Christian. So I understand you grew up in a cult that was, I don't know, would you classify them as a Christian-y type of cult or, or what exactly? Oh, definitely. 100% deep evangelicalism. Uh, I read the Bible about four times before I was 14. And they, you know, did tasks like having us memorize the begats and, and very mind numbing little things like that. So yeah, 100% evangelical Sunday cult. Right. So where was this cult located? Because I was reading some articles on your website earlier. And you were talking about a cult up in Alaska. Is that the one that you're referring to that you kind of grew up in? Yeah, they have, or ha they still have, but had many more compounds back in the 70s when my mother was recruited. Um, they had probably, I don't know, 10 to 15 globally. Wow. Uh, and about 43,000 followers just in the U.S. Back in, I think it was in the newspaper in 73, 74, um, they didn't move a lot of us to Alaska for a specific reason, but I don't know if you want me to jump ahead to that or if you want to pull back to the yeah, beginning. Of well, what, what's the name of the group? Because I think you mentioned in one of the articles, it's like the biggest cult you've never heard of sort of thing. I mean, I didn't know there was that was that many people involved in it. I thought it was just a kind of a fringe group somewhere up in the wilds of Alaska somewhere, but it sounds yeah. like they were a massive and maybe still are. I don't know how big they are, but what was the name of this group? And sort of maybe you can give us a little bit of the backstory, how they started up. Sure. If you Google it, you're going to want to look up Sam, S-A-M, Fife, F-I-F-E, Move of God. Mm. So, um, But they also, you know, called themselves the walk, the body, the work. So it, it, you know how they kind of morph their names or, or dissect their names. But mm -hmm. in short, Sam Fife was a Baptist minister he started, uh, I believe it was in the military, got out of the military and started doing like street preaching back in the 60s. 
And that was in Florida. And that's how he started to begin to ramp up his following. And then they created what they called body houses. And you'll still see a model of this today. Uh, this is where you get invited to a Bible study at someone's house and it's filled with fellowship and food and they want to put you there first and and that's kind of your first step in. Uh, so he had a lot of body houses all over the United States and um, that's basically how he started and slowly grew it over the years. Mm -hmm. So it sounds then, like classic cult psychology right off the bat. We can mm -hmm. identify... I think you mentioned yeah. in your article love bombing. I mean, that's one of the the recruitment tactics that cults often use, isn't it? It's so welcoming. It's so, it's beautiful. These people seem so friendly and it's wonderful. And you think, yeah. how could this be a wrong thing when they're just so lovely and, and welcoming and friendly? Absolutely. Yes. No, come to our Bible study. You know, other kids come, bring your kid. Mm -hmm. They can bring room. You know, we'll have food. Let's do a potluck. You bring your best dish. Oh, and then they're flattering you. Wow, you're such an amazing cook. Um, you know, sprinkled in with, you know, probably the Bible verses that are being chosen or the positive ones from the Bible, right? <laughs> that are about love and community and things like that. And yeah, that that's going to be your first few months, if not maybe a year in that little setting and and then linearly getting you to go to certain church services and things like that. They even held church services in the home. Right. So when it got to where Sam Five had what he called his father ministry, you'll you'll understand this from the Bible where God instructs that there will be like teachers and apostles and prophets. So mm -hmm. Sam put himself in the prophet position, of course. Of course. And then <laughs> why wouldn't he? Yes, and then he had um, an all-male. Um, so there was a lot of miso that misogynistic. Right, uh, view that, oh, yes, that God had chosen man specifically. Um, and, and yeah, they would travel around recruiting. And, of course, you know, they were the cold celebrities. Like, they're, they're coming to town, you know, everybody's cooking their best dishes and things like that. So that was a slow rise as he got more followers and he found his people that he could bring into his inner circle to uh, start to really grow his following. Mm -hmm. So would you say, it sounds like already you're describing another cult thing is that there's a charismatic leader. That's typically, we have almost every cult, it's a universal thing, isn't it? A charismatic leader who gr gathers a group of very loyal followers around him. Usually it's a man, sometimes it could be a woman, but it's usually a man, isn't it? So would you yeah. say this Sam fits that sort of classic cult leader profile? Oh, 100%. He played the guitar. He sang. He had a very dynamic personality. Um, to this day, there are people that'll just say, oh, I just loved him. He was just such a wonderful person. Right. Yeah. So he fits all the classic markers. So we got love bombing. We've got a charismatic leader who draws people to him. Did they actually have churches or, to, or as you say, were they just like home groups? Well, it ended up building into, so So I'll just tell you my specific situation and how it rolled out for my family. Mm -hmm. And this mimics dozens of other children that I've spoken to and how it rolled out for their family. So my mom got recruited by a woman who was already associated with the cult. Um, just to tell you, um, after I was born, my father had, he was in the Navy. And he had returned from the Mediterranean Sea and he retired from the Navy and then was approached uh, to still to do a defense contract. My my father was part of the Grumman crew and we all moved to California where he went to work at Miramar mm -hmm. to design a 14 Tomcat. So my father was gone a lot. And in the beginning, I re even remember my mother before the age of three. She was fun loving. She laughed. She loved to cook. Her friends would come over. There'd be partying in the backyard. You know, I can remember the times my father was home and, you know, like having this just like photographic picture of him laughing, sitting in a chair with like a beer in his hand. Um, so there was that loving and and very secure feeling for me and my brother and my sister. I'm the youngest. Uh, and then the re as the recruiting ramped up and my mother would take us to a body house. And I talk about that in the beginning of the book that we're going to this body house and then 
um, she started changing. I remember that feeling of feeling my mother changing, her energy, her moods became darker and more and more glum and, and and she started to be more pulled back of her connection with her children, um, becoming more author authoritative and things like that. And right, then so she she gets she got sucked into the cult and you kind of got pulled along into it. Is that what it sounds like? Yeah. So you know how the recruiters will use anything in your life or even in the world to solidify the message that they're giving you. So it was an end times message that the world was ending. So one of the oh, big yeah. they used against my mother was, look at your husband. He's building a war plane. See, it's in your own yeah. family, right? Apocalypse is just around the corner. Yes. And so, <laughs> and we got to get to the wilderness and this is what God is called, you know, gather his army, 10,000 times 10,000 and all that whole mm -hmm. scriptural um, message. And uh, I guess she ended up consolidating this all. I, I My memory kind of drops off here. And I think that's because things were becoming dark. So I'm already starting as a child to kind of just dissociate, block some things out because life is just changing very swiftly for me. Uh, she had consolidated uh mine and my brothers and sisters bedrooms and brought in bunk beds and my father comes home and there's all these strangers in our house mm. uh arguing there i remember a lot of arguing and that energy of arguing between the two of them and then he ended up leaving the home um and my mother filed for divorce and that home was um a beautiful home up in the suburbs paid for by the military because my father was working for them so you know, we had a very good life. And of course that got taken. And yeah, I remember, sorry, go ahead. No, I said, yeah, it would have, it would have been shattered really as, especially as a young child. huh? Oh yeah. Oh yes. And then there was a very short stint where I remember being in a very impoverished area of, of the city. We were in San Diego. And then my next memory after that is being in this U-Haul, um, driving across the country they classified you so so i need to explain this to you a little bit so you understand this system they had already bought a lots of land in all different areas and at that time it was post-cold war america had a lot of secret military bases and they were selling these off so for instance the compound that we were classified to and my mother took us on a trip to meet with the father ministry so they could probably do a psychological assessment of her. There's there, there's some interesting unknowns about this cult, such as, you know, where did they get the money to buy all these lands? How did they have the connection to buy them? But my mother was overweight and that was considered to be a demon. So if you had any um, mental health issues, um, any issues at all, like you weren't kind of up to par they had certain compounds that they called deliverance farms. And those farms were specific. There was one in Sapa, Mississippi, um, and one in Ware, Massachusetts. And there may have been more, but those two are the ones I know were the most brutal. Mm -hmm. And so they classify where they're going to send you based on who you are, their need, where you'll best fit in. Um, and that's where they sent us was to wear so that my mother could work on her demon of gluttony, which caused uh, her to be overweight. Mm -hmm. So did it work? Did she actually lose weight and sort of battle that demon from their point of view anyway? Well, um, when we first got there, I remember arriving and then I don't have any memory after that because we were separated. We were all separate. Um, I don't believe that my mother knew I don't believe that if, of course, that if they told my mother, we're going to separate you from your children, we're going to starve you. Yeah. And then we're going to beat them and your girls, you, all three of your children will be, you know, raped and this is, and we're going to use them for labor. I, I'm quite sure my mother would have said, well, we're not doing that. Yeah. Not going to happen. Um, right. But no so, cult does that, do they? I mean, no. I've talked to different people from different cults that have got out, gotten out. And that's what they all said. And they never tell you the whole story right up front. Nobody goes, hey, I want to live on a compound and be beaten and abused and for labor and sexual purposes and have all my money taken and work crazy hours. I mean, they never tell you that when, on day one, do they? No. And I believe it's most likely, unfortunately, my mother wouldn't really have conversations with us about this and, you know, after the cult. So it was 
very hard to get information from her. But I imagine they used this, you know, we'll take care of your children so you can work on you. You can work on what's best for your life and not have to focus on that. And so um, also, this is very important too. One of the first things they did was keep us in sleep deprivation. So mm-hmm. for a lot of praying during the night, uh, very ritualistically at, at specific times, um, working us to the point of exhaustion during the day, getting us up very, very early. So my mother, I recall seeing her in the dining room. Um, they put her at another table with other overweight women. And even more disgustingly, they also put women at that table that were underweight. So they had a demon of like not eating of starving mm-hmm. themselves. So that and, eating disorders on some level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. And they would give the overweight people like a cup to a half of a cup of food on their plates. And then they would be sitting there with a thin person whose plate was heaping, and they all had to eat that. Um, so I do. I, I wrote a scene in my book. Um, you know, I used to like to try to catch my mother's eye in the dining room. I'd be like looking at her, hoping she'd see me. But I do remember her becoming very gaunt. Mm. And even one time watching her use her fist. To get up from the table like she was weak so um yeah that's what they did and meanwhile they're working you and and having you in sleep deprivation is as we know within 24 hours your mind is no longer yours exactly uh, i was going to say that because you're describing just classic cult tactics again isn't it where mm-hmm. it can be so tired and so busy you don't have time for critical thinking. They're, break, they're breaking you down emotionally, psycho- psychologically, physically to the point where you're totally under their control. Is that kind of the aim of all this sleep deprivation and overwork, would you say? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Mm. So you're you're living in this compound somewhere in Mississippi. So what happened to you then? You're, you this is in where Oh, in Massachusetts. Yeah, this is in Massachusetts, and this is, you know, an interesting thing about this. It was exactly like a military base would be there. We lived in a house they called the Tabernacle. Their main buildings were all called the Tabernacle after the Tabernacle in the Bible. Uh, And um, it was very uh, already set up like a barrack. So there was a mess hall downstairs, and that's where we had meals. And uh, also they would pull back the tables and the benches would become the church service. Um, and then all of the the rooms were upstairs. And then there was a walkway that was covered and it led to this big wide house, which I imagine must have been like an officer's quarters at one time. And that's where the boys were held. Um, so we were classified into these groups based on our age. It was extremely scary uh, going into a room with other little girls my age and we're just in these bunk beds and then there's mm-hmm. an overseer in the room and i'm not allowed to even speak to my mother my sister my brother we weren't allowed to talk to each other got to be hugely traumatic i mean i can't even imagine i know i i have grandchildren and, and one of them is three and i and i caught myself looking at her and she's so loved and so happy and so free and when she comes to visit me if she says, I'm ready to go home, I want my mommy. We go, okay. And we okay. call mom and dad. Yeah. And I <laughs> I caught myself kind of visualizing like, wow, I how many times did I say I, I want my mommy? And they beat me for it. They, I mean, I can't even wrap my head around yeah. that level of sickness. It's unimaginably <laughs> cruel and on so many, on every possible level, isn't it? Yes. Yes. It's, it's torture it really is well what did they have you doing during the day you said you were working what kind of work were you doing we had it was 280 acres on that compound and they had vast fields so sam really 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 applied the uh, idle hands or the devil's work oh yeah uh, first right so uh there's always the children always had to be working so some of the tasks that we would do 
One that I really remember is very early in the morning around five, because it would be dark and I could remember the sun rising. Um, the, the boys would fill these little uh, cans, uh, like they saved all the cans from like canned goods, you know, mm-hmm. green and all of that with some get- kerosene. And then we were tasked to be on our hands and knees through the potato fields. And there's these little grubs that'll get under the potato leaves and we would have to pick them off so they wouldn't eat the leaves. So we'd maybe spend two hours doing that before we went to breakfast and understand I'm, I'm four, five, six, seven years old. That's crazy. Doing, doing this type of work. Um, five in the we, morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's nuts. Well, what was the aim of this cult? I mean, they're on this kind of compound, but it wasn't the only compound. What would you say was their sort of mission? This Sam Fife, he sounds like a, a, like we say, a classic cult leader. What were they trying to accomplish? What did they think they were doing? Well, what they were doing, you know, was building a great wealth. Um, What ended up happening is in the state of Alaska, they have a pipeline dividend fund. They're called PDFs. And and since 1981 or 82, um, residents of the state of Alaska get paid about a thousand bucks a year. So yeah. that was their main goal in 1977, 78, 79. They were just buying land and land and you could still stake land and homestead it up in Alaska. So they ended up mass moving us from where? from Mississippi, from Florida. They had a compound in the Midwest, Portland, Oregon. They're mass moving people up into Alaska so that they can um, obtain residency. And now they're starting to collect those PDFs. Uh, I recall people lining up in the tabernacle in Alaska to sign off on their forms and then lining up to sign off on the checks. Right. So you can imagine you've got 200 to 250 people on a compound, including the children, because they get paid too. Right. So back in the early 80s, this cult was making at least a million dollars off of each compound, and they had five to six of them in Alaska that they... Right. Yeah. So Just off the and, pipeline fund. And this disturbs me and makes me want to dig deeper. They had contracted with the state of Alaska. They were helping build the pipeline. So when we ended up moving, my brother was probably about 15, 14, 15. He didn't go to school. He went to work on the pipeline. So they're also getting money for the jobs they're doing for the state of Alaska. And they're using children along with adult men to do that work Mm -hmm. for free. Yeah, I was going to say another cult, classic cult move, isn't it? I think of uh, Warren Jeffs and the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. They've got loads and loads of construction businesses that they run, yeah. and the kids work for nothing, and that they, all the money goes to the cult, and they've got major businesses all over that area, and yeah, I think it's in Utah, Colorado, different places, you know, yeah. so that's another classic cult move. So it's that I was going to say the, the, the typical cult leader either gets involved in starting a cult for sex, money, and power, or some combination of all three. So you've mm-hmm. hit the money bit, and he sounds like he's got a loyal cadre of followers. What about the sex aspect? Was he into, like, the multiple wives thing and all that, like a David Koresh type? Uh, no, they weren't into uh, polygamy or anything like that. Definitely the businesses, like, if you look at them today, the compound in Alaska I was on is still there. They have a very a budding sawmill. They have Dry Creek Construction. Mm-hmm. Um, they have other compounds. They, yes, they build homes. They have very, they have massively budding businesses mm-hmm. up there. But what they did do is they welcomed a lot of pedophiles into the cult because they believed it was a demon spirit that could be cast out. So there was a lot of pedophilia around us. I mean, there was no safe place. And then even more horrifically, you start getting teenagers who begin to molest and 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 abuse the younger children because it's now rolling down to the generation. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that there was a lot of sexual abuse on on, on mm-hmm. pretty much all the compounds. It sounds like sounds like yeah. it was a safe haven for an abuser to sort of hide yeah. out, be under the radar. A hundred percent, oh, hundred percent, absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, even uh, one thing, one of the abusers that got me in Alaska, I never recall him being called up in a service or, you know, the laying on of hands to help him heal. In fact, he had his own room and he had special privileges, like he got to keep food in his room. Well, we didn't get to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, little, so, so, you know, that's very questionable. Um, my guess, maybe he had some money and that is what gave him a little bit of power. And that's just one example. I mean, there's, there's so many horrific stories from children who grew up in this cold. It is deeply heartbreaking. I'm beating with, with two by fours as a young child. My first near death experience was during an exorcism. I was beat so violently. Hmm. Um, and, and recall it very clearly floating out of my body, seeing myself and then swoosh you're in another place, the cold hmm. showers, things like that, like very methodical and ritual torture. When we get back from the break with Venny, we're going to get into even more this issue of the abuses that occurred at the Sam Fife Move of God cult, and she's going to break it down a little bit more for us. We're also going to get into how she escaped from the cult and then how she's been basically rebuilding her life in the several decades that she got out, how she's helping other people too. So you're not going to want to miss the second half of this conversation. If you like small town mystery, crazy news, and wild history, then the Florida Men on Florida Man podcast is for you. Each week, Josh Mills and Wayne McCarty bring you the absolute best Florida has to offer. So if you're looking for a show that's safe for the family, but funny enough to help you escape everyday life, then listen to the Florida Men on Florida Man podcast. That's Florida Men, plural, on Florida Man podcast. I also wanted to let you know what's coming up here in the next few episodes on Mindship Podcast. I've got some really fantastic guests lined up as I'm doing this recording just a little bit later today. I'm going to be speaking with Gary Hudson. He actually sent me a book a few months ago. He wrote it back in 2018-19. It's called Surrender to Reason, New Testament Studies that Disputed Faith. And I read it with great interest because, like me, he's a former pastor who walked away from his faith. And we're going to hear from Gary about how more than anything it was his study of the Bible as he was preparing his sermons and that kind of thing that led to him questioning his faith, deconstructing everything, and ultimately walking away from the whole thing. So I'm really excited to chat with Gary after, especially after reading his book. Then I've got an episode scheduled after that with Don McCarty, and she spoke to my ex-wife Lisa a few months ago on her podcast, and she's come out of a controlling, sort of a high control fundamentalist religion as well. So she's got a fascinating story. And then also in between those, I've got my good friend, Dr. Terry Daniel. She's going to be doing her conference on death, grief, and belief coming up. I think it's in July. So we're going to be talking about what happened last year. I was a presenter at that conference last year, which was held in Portland, Oregon, my old hometown. Really enjoyed that interacting with the people that came to the conference. So we're looking forward to hearing what Terry Daniel has to say. And then also we've got our final MindShift Zoom call scheduled in the month of May. We're going to have Nate Manderson coming back on the 21st of May at 8 p.m. UK time, which would be noon on the West Coast, 3 p.m. on the East Coast in North America. He's going to be our final guest before we take our summer break. I'm really interested to touch base with Nate again, especially after hearing some of the feedback we got from the episode that we did. If you don't know anything about Nate, you can look him up on Salon. He does a lot of writing there, very critical of the evangelical church. Even though he's still kind of a Christian, he's very much a liberal Christian. He's still hanging on by a thread. So you can get access to that call as all the other ones we do every month. We just had one, in fact, last month with Chris Shelton, the ex-Scientologist. That was an absolutely fascinating conversation. That's available on Patreon. You can watch those videos on Patreon. You can get the access to those calls by becoming a Patreon supporter of the show. And in fact, we want to give a thank you to Claire S. Bear. She's the latest Patreon supporter of the show. So thanks to Claire for that. What you can do is you can go on the show notes. There's the link to my Patreon page that gives you, as I say, access to these monthly MindShift Zoom calls we do, as well as early access to not only every episode before it drops to the general public, you get it about middle of the week or so, but you also get access to the exclusive Patreon content that I've been putting out in between the other episodes. I've done one on Mark Driscoll, cult leader, 
and some other ones, Dominion Theology. We're going to be doing one coming up on Christian nationalism. So being a Patreon supporter of the show gives you access to all that great content. So let's get on back into this chat with Vinny Kosha's cult child as she escaped from the Sam Fife Move of God cult. Sam Fife preached. He, he has a sermon. One of his most disturbing sermons is called The Divine Order of Raising Children, in which he instructs. I mean, I even have excerpts of it in his book, in my book that I could read to you. And if it's okay for me to read mm-hmm. one yeah. portion of the sermon, that'll help you understand. This is Sam Fife talking. Uh, the demons can't make him, the child, any worse than he is. They can only help him be a little worse than he is. The demons can't make him any more rebellious than he is. They can only strengthen that rebellious nature he already has rebellious against you and against God from the day he was born, desiring to be the only one in the whole wide world, moving in his individualism, not recognizing that he is part of a unit, a family whole, and he is not the whole family. He's not the cock of the walk. Oh, how many parents help him to enlarge that idea. From the time he is three days old, He's the cock of the walk. Instead of starting when he's three days old, breaking him loose from that idea, he's born selfish. He's born screaming out. He's born caring less that he can wake up mother 14 times during the night with his screaming and hollering, whether he really needs anything or not. And how many parents I know across the world who need to be taught this. And. That's a very disturbing view of children. Yeah, I mean, to 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 call an infant who's crying a beast, a, a selfish, yeah. So I mean, therein is lies the cusp of his his instructions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know he goes further into laying on the belt. So uh, understanding Corporal punishment. That, yeah. Well, it it's not well, abuse. Yeah, it, just it, straight it, abuse. Well, really, isn't. It? Well, I look at it as methodic torture. The only uh, the the um, the Israelites, the the black Israelites, some of them do this. Um, they begin to beat their 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 infant baby at three days old. Wow. It is supposed to be done to strip them from that beast nature. This is what Sam taught that same ideal, and. Um, so understanding that not only did we children experience abuse, we're also witnessing it in very horrific ways. Mm-hmm. So yes, infants were were supposed to be beaten and, and were were beaten. It, it was very horrific. It is but, torture. You know, yeah. Sounds like it was that that their theology then that it was the demonic <laughs> presences in children and adults that needed to be basically beaten out or and they wouldn't see it as torture, I suppose. They would have no. seen it as we're doing these kids a favor by, mm-hmm. you know, beating the devil out of them, I guess, literally, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And that, and the ideal that a child is born a beast, yeah. that, that, that is the child's natural nature, even from the womb to mm-hmm. be beast. So, right. So how long were you on this compound in Alaska then? You moved up there when you were how old? Um, I was just turning eight. Uh-huh. I ended up in Alaska and um, I'm not really sure and it's not very clear to me what happened and where I have a recollection of all of us being brought out into this large opening that's in front of the tabernacle and uh, that spiel that God is sending or the devil is sending. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the army, you know, we're at war with, with the apostates outside of mm-hmm. the, so, so they brought the brought us back together, instructed us how to be. I remember these boxy black cars showing up. So by this time, it's 79, get, you know, like 1978, 79. Um, I don't remember the flight to Alaska. I remember landing 
at the Fairbanks airport. And I remember the long drive to the compound because it was so foreboding. It was night. It just seemed forever because it's about a two and a half drive, two and a half hours, sorry, drive Mm -hmm. from Fairbanks, you know, down Richardson Highway, just desolation, desolation. The further in you go and then another mile um, into the woods uh, at an unmarked road. I mean, if you're driving down that highway, you'll you'll miss the entrance yeah, to this cold. Never you don't know there. Mm-hmm. And um, oddly, there was this slight sense of freedom because I'm back with my sister and I'm back right. with my family. Um, and and my older sister was always like just my protector, kind of. Even though she couldn't protect me, there was a very tight bond there. Yeah, at least she uh-huh. was there physically. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I could I could lean into her. She she could put her arm around me. Um and so uh we were on that compound um for another 7 years. Wow. So there's a lot of horrific abuse that you mentioned I think in the article that's where you were sexually abused. I don't know if you want to go into that. It's a can be very triggering for some people. You've kind of talked yeah. about that a little bit already. Well, my first uh, predator was um, in the Ware compound. The leader, his name was Wassel. Mm. Uh, he was abusing all the little girls. And and again, I write about this in my book. I can remember, I, I would say maybe I was around five or six. Like he would come to the door of the room and Sister Debbie would like, he, he would I can just deliver him the child. Yeah. For- story time and I can remember thinking well you know I must be a bad little girl because I never get chosen for story time you know and then it's my turn and then I begin to find out what story time really is then I remember Mm -hmm. that feeling of like dreading story time so I was already conditioned from three years old to seven being molested right um so then you go to another compound and you're you get groomed again you know um so yeah and even the boys didn't escape it even my brother you know he didn't escape it either he was also raped at where and it just disturbs me that the man who raped him and many other boys has worked at the Asheville, uh north carolina School of Music for 30 years. Wow. He's never been brought to justice. Never been brought to justice, no. But no. they wouldn't have reported him anyway, it sounds like. I and mean, there's loads of abusers on these various compounds that never got reported to the authorities. Well, when I was in Alaska, my father fought so hard for us. It's just heartbreaking and why I'm, I'm really, find it, it's really important to support men's mental health, too. Mm-hmm. Because... The cold, you know, funded my mother's divorce. You know, they wanted your children for sure. Yeah. And so my father was nearly bankrupted trying to fight for us. Uh, And he did call the Alaska uh, Department of Child Services and they sent someone out. At this point, I'm about 12. My sister's 16. My brother ran away twice. The second time he made it to freedom whatever that looks like right he escaped mm -hmm. and ended up in foster care they never sent anybody else to check on us ever at that time um and i remember the lady coming from and and pulling me and my sister out one at a time from our cabin but you know the day before right we're called into an elders meeting and and they don't often threaten you they love bomb you girls the devil is sending, you know, your father is attacking yeah. your mother. The devil is sending, this is your opportunity to, you know, shine and 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 be that light for God and protect your mother. And this is an important moment for you. So, yeah. And so I write about the conflict between my thoughts and my actions and trying to covertly catch her 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 attention, like scuffing my feet not looking at her, doing mm-hmm. things on purpose, hoping she'd go, hmm, something's not quite right here. But she didn't. She left. Yeah. It sounds and so I... common, unfortunately, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That the state, a lot of times the state just doesn't want to get involved because of the negative backlash 
I mean, thinking again about the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, there was that famous example. They came into the compound in Texas, I think it was, and they Wait. basically raided it. Yeah, and they took loads of kids out, but nobody would talk. Oh, you know? oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's on that keep keep sweet. Yeah, keep sweet. And yeah. they came in and basically raided the compound, but they ended up having to give them all back. And they knew there was abuses going on, but they couldn't prove anything. You know, because nobody was talking. And like you say, they'd been so conditioned and brainwashed by the cult already that they just, they weren't going to tell the truth. Well, and I think that a lot of times the, um, maybe the workers that are working with the children don't understand that they have to use a very specific language. Because when you grow Mm -hmm. up like that, if someone had, if, if that worker had said, are you, do you feel like you're abused? I wouldn't have been like, yes, I didn't know what abuse meant. Exactly. I didn't know what that word meant. It had become normalized, hadn't it? Well, it just was never presented to me. I didn't know the language. Mm -hmm. So I think they ask questions that the child doesn't know that language. So they go, no, because they just, why would they say yes to something that they don't even understand? So I think there has to be a lot more specific and different questions. Um, It's a very difficult thing because you also have to make sure you're not leading a child. But had she asked me specific questions, do you ever get hit? Um, What do those hits look like? Has anybody touched your... I didn't know the word vagina. I didn't know the word penis. I didn't even know the word private part. Right? So she might have had to point and show me then i probably would have said yes 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 Mm. but none of those questions were asked of me are you happy here you know that was it was like are you happy here do you love your mother do you want to stay here do you want to go to your dad you know questions that really don't matter because they don't get into the heart of what's really being Mm -hmm. done to the child yeah, so it's a yeah. very horrific environment you're growing up in. So how did you end up getting out then? I mean, you say your brother escaped. You were there for, what, seven or eight years, something like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, a situation happened with my sister. I won't go into too much detail in case somebody wants to read the book. It is the way the book ends. Um, and it ended up getting us expelled from the cult because one thing, you know, um, girls were very blamed for mm-hmm. What happened to them so i mean she was raped uh but she was completely blamed had to stand in front of the church and confess to being i mean it's just horrific um and so they when they kick you out they give you back your your birth certificates because they they took those so so i was going to tell you after the social worker came and she left that was my last my hope died with her at that moment of watching her walk down the path around the bend she's gone and my mind starts to think okay i can run away i I know when i'm 18 i'm considered an adult so then now i'm just like i got six years and and i'm gonna go like my brother did and then i'll I'll find him um but i didn't have any knowledge of like i won't have id i won't have a birth certificate it doesn't cross your mind because nobody's taught you about that Mm -hmm. um and so um they just they let us pack up. They wouldn't allow us to talk to anybody. Once they made the decision, we were sequestered to our cabin and meals were brought to us. So we weren't allowed to speak to any of the other members. And then we packed our stuff up in these huge green. Everything was military grade, the duffel bag, the blankets, all of that. And they came and searched it. I don't know what they were searching for. I think they were trying to look for pictures, writing, things like that. And then they dropped us off at the Fairbanks airport with zero money. Yeah, how and, did you get anywhere? Yes. And, <laughs> um, well, they got tickets to us to go to my grandmother in Tennessee. And so then right. we just flew to Tennessee to where my grandmother had a farm. Yeah. So, again, that's, I was going to say classic cult psychology again, though, the dispensing of, of existence, shunning. That's a classic one, isn't it, where you've crossed some sort of a line and they they make an example of you. That's part mm-hmm. of it, isn't it? Where people with that are still within the cult, they see that and they say, "Okay, I don't want that to happen to me." So I'm not going to speak out. I'm not going to do whatever it is that got them kicked out and shunned. So you're making you're being made an example of as well, aren't you? 
Yeah, and we didn't have any electricity, any running water. We didn't have television. I mean, we had zero access to the outside world, right. except for very specific and controlled trips we may have taken into town for various reasons. Um, but even like pages would be torn out of magazines or anything that came in, and it was all always censored. Mail was censored, so if you went to your little box in the tabernacle, your mail was opened because they'd opened it and read it. Wow. Um, so being thrown into even a little tiny town in, called Martin, Tennessee, right, which is a quiet, very lackadaisical kind of town, was so overwhelming to me. It felt so busy. The world felt so busy. But at first, I was very fascinated, like, with electricity. And my grandmother mm -hmm. taught me how to the stove and i was definitely extremely enthralled with television and i am working on a sequel there's always emotion that goes into writing these books because for the first probably one or two months after leaving the cult there were parts of me that sometimes missed the quiet i missed my friends um and i wrote letters to my very best friend and then when you don't hear back from them you know life just curves on you mm -hmm. Now I'm trying to adjust to this world that is so big and so foreign that now here I am thrust into a completely new situation with with no transitional help, as we know. Yeah, it's got to be overwhelming. Yeah, extremely overwhelming. Like I'd never worn pants. Hmm. So even the wearing jeans, I felt so naked. Um, I'd never worn a, a bikini. You know, so like getting to try to transition into these worldly things, but then just feeling so awkward in my own skin and my own body. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, the whole experience, even even a small town like that. Imagine if you had been dropped into New York City or, you know, some major metropolis. I don't know right. if you could have handled that. Maybe it was good that you were in a tiny little town, you know, that you could kind of take it easy a little bit more. Absolutely. And it's you know, very sad that there isn't more transitional help for people that want to leave. I mean, that's part of why people don't leave those type of compound situations. There's just so much fear on the outside world. They just teach you that nobody's going to help you. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the people out there are killers and rapists and murderers. And you can't reason in your mind that well, wait a minute, like I'm being abused in here. So how's that any different? Like you yeah. can't reason any of that. There's just zero critical thinking happening. Well, and as a classic us versus them mentality, that's another <laughs> marker of cults, isn't it? They create an, a, a black and white us versus them mentality. So the world is evil. We're pure. And so therefore you don't want to go out there for a lot of reasons. We're protecting you actually in this compound. So yeah, it's, it's a very scary place. The world must have been a scary place for you. Yeah, and I'll tell you just one thing that kind of did ping, started pinging my brain open. Um, they used the threat of Russia was a big, big threat that they used because, again, it was post-Cold War, right? So the Russians were coming. They were going to invade us. We did a lot of praying for, you know, the presidents. Um, and so we had intense survival training. Um, I was learning to shoot guns at 12, um, and so one of the first movies that stands out to me, it's 1984 at this time, is the original movie of Red Dawn. Mm-hmm. Patrick Swayze. Yes. yes I saw it in the theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so my mind's like, oh, they were right. Look, they're happen. making movies about this. Yeah. Wow. And then my mind, as I'm, deconstructing which was really about a 30-year process is starting to learn like okay you know they actually used that so so anything that was happening in the world and this is a classic cult thing too right is being used as a fear tool mm -hmm. um but that that scared me i was terrified i was like it must be real. They really are coming. Uh, they would do drills on us, you know, to prepare us for that moment that a communist points a gun in our face and screams at us. Do you believe in Jesus uh, so that you're preparing to die for that, that you're going to proclaim Jesus 
And so then I can recall in the cult, my mind kind of reasoning that like, well, okay, I'll just say I don't believe in Jesus or don't believe in God, and then I'll live. And then right. the other part of my brain is like, mm, really? You're going to take uh, your short time on earth for an eternity in hell? Exactly. I can't deny or, God. Are you, right. Or, <laughs> or will you just accept your death so you can have an eternity in heaven? And what a mind but yeah, I know my language or a small child to try to reckon with. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's going beyond just religious trauma syndrome, isn't it? I mean, we're talking, about, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I can remember I didn't have that maybe extreme of a background, but I was raised in a very fundamentalist church. We were very conscious of the rapture coming and, you know, being mm-hmm. left behind and seeing those movies and everything else, you know. So as yeah. a 10, 11, 12, 13 year old kid, I was absolutely terrified. That I was going to get left behind and you know face the tribulation, so that that's yeah. hugely traumatic for a kid, isn't it? You you, you can't yeah. process that kind of stuff at ten, eleven, twelve years old. You just don't have the emotional capacity to mm-hmm. process that sort of stuff, do you? No, and uh, I had a situation um, in our cabin. We had pot belly stoves, and that's what we used to heat and stuff. Where I hadn't opened a grate, and kerosene exploded in my face, and I got burned really bad. And that solidified what it must be like to live in hell. That's yeah. going to be the pain I'm going to feel forever and always. Eternity, yeah. Just a short so, taster. Right, right. So just all of those little things make you go, I don't want to feel that forever. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's uh, it's Lots definitely completely shattering of the mind body and and the soul is just yeah, yeah. but I, yeah they I do can't want... feel it yeah they can't ignite our they can never ever ever snuff out your brain totally and i think that's the beauty of the human spirit it's true. is that you can go through that and still find a way to survive mm-hmm. yeah horrific abuse and torture and then mm-hmm. come out the other side. And I was going to ask you that. I know I want people to read your books. I know you don't want to give away the whole thing, but as you're coming out, did you find, because you said you were kind of, you went into the cult as a younger child. Did you have that sort of experience of having to re, you know, reclaim your original authentic identity after you left the cult and started sort of rebuilding your life? Because you obviously had some sort of pre-cult, you know, pre-religious identity that you had before you went into the group. Did you have a hard time recovering that when you left it later? I didn't really do that work until I got much older. A lot cracked open when my mother passed away in 2008. But as a teenager, I just fell into like traumatic amnesia where I, I had a story. My mom and dad got divorced. My dad was in the Navy and that's how we ended up in Tennessee. That was it. I didn't have the, well, I didn't know that word, right? I didn't know that word. In 1984, I had no idea what I'd been through. And, and I mean, even still today, you know, that childhood feels very distant. So I was a very, very dissociated teenager. So I just really focused into the faking it till I could make it like watching, you know, how do I act in this situation? Learning to count change, how to be in the, I mean, there was so much going on for me that my mind just shoved all of that down and like i'm not even gonna like think about it we're not gonna talk about it mom won't talk about it and my grandmother was pentecostal so we're still in the church oh, right. we're still going to church every wednesday night and every every sunday she bought a, a single wide trailer and put it on um her farm and we had it there temporarily and then my mom ended up moving it to a trailer park but I still had that strong religious influence over me. So. So you weren't completely out of the fire as it were. Right. And I, and I didn't have the, I didn't have any of the context or the language or even the understanding um, of what I had just been through. It's just, you know, the mind does very extraordinary things to protect us. Oh yeah. It will compartmentalize and just hide it away over here. We're going to, close this little canister because you're not quite ready to deal with that yet Mm. um yeah but then that these things can come back in the form of being triggered and having flashbacks i mean it's basically mm -hmm. what i hear you describe it's a form it is ptsd isn't it 
religious trauma, as I understand, is a form of PTSD where years and years and years later, you could have a debilitating, triggering flashback or something like that. And bam, you were really in the shit then because you're not prepared for it. Did you ever have things like that? You know, these triggers and flashbacks? Oh, my God. Yes, it completely controlled my behavior, the decisions Mm. I made in life. Um, Everything was reversed for me. You know, I thought abuse was love and I was scared to death of love. Um, I just did not have an understanding of my emotions. I can see remnants of I have always was creative. We weren't allowed to do art and things on the cult. So I wrote like after um, and even looking at some of the poems and things that I wrote, like when I finally went to college, I'm like 20, you know, there's these remnants like it's it's seeping out of me. But again, there's no critical concept about it. But writing cult child was extremely excruciating. Um mm horrific migraines, vomiting, uh, nightmares that were just debilitating, uh, where I would just have to like be in a dark room. Um, yes, that was an intent. I have a lot of empathy for why a lot of people who have to maintain a life and work and try to like kind of stay normal, why they don't work on their trauma. Because they don't have the arena to do it. They can't afford to stay home for three days and cry. And that's what happens. And that crying is often uncontrollable. I couldn't stop it. I I had days where I cried for three, four days. Like the first couple of days was intense, just sobbing. And then it would start to soften, right? But, But unless you're able to stay home have a soft environment, rest. Why, why would you work on it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a deep empathy for that and wish that there, you know what I really wish there was? I wish you could take leave from your job, paid leave mm-hmm. to go work on feeling like you yeah. would if you you had a child or whatever, but that's how important mental health is, but that's not available. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. a very difficult process to to sit with your trauma. It, it, it hurts. It is. It is. Yeah, you've got to work through that. Well, I know we're getting close to the end. I don't want to keep you too long. I want I want people to read the book. In fact, you know, it's, it sounds like a fantastic resource for those that have come out of very high control, abusive religious backgrounds or high control groups. What would you say? Miss the last question, I guess. What was the most beneficial thing that you discovered in sort of rebuilding that life, rebuilding that identity? Did you go to therapy? Was it writing the book? What exactly was it that was the most beneficial, would you say? Definitely writing the book. I, I didn't have a therapist when I was writing it. I really sequestered myself away. I wanted mm-hmm. to organically remember, um, verify memories with my brother and sister. You'll find in Quilt Child, I don't fill in blank spaces. So one thing I say is if you get to the end of this book and you're like, wait, I'm missing some things, like welcome to my what happened? welcome to the yeah. mind of, of a trauma survivor. Yeah, you've got black um, spots. Oh, for sure. And and I did have a wonderful psychologist for a while. And that was one thing she said, you know, you don't have to dig in those blank spots. There's just more trauma. Uh mm-hmm. you, you, right. Um and and you were talking about complex PTSD. There's a great quote that says, um, it's by uh, Hillary Whit- Whitaker Clark, and she said, uh, that there's two people in this world that suffer complex PTSD. So complex PTSD is different than PTSD. Mm. PTSD tends to happen with maybe one event. Complex PTSD is, it's repeatedly happened. But she said, uh, there's two people in this world that carry complex PTSD, soldiers of war and abused children. Mm. And children that never see war. And that quote just embodies um, the way that I, you know, look at children. And I do want to mention one thing that's really I'm passionate about, and people can visit my website, benicocious.com. I have a petition um, that I am always looking for signatures for, uh, you know, in America, CAFTA 1973, how interesting, 1973 is the year Mm -hmm. I went to the old was uh, put into federal law and it has some intense and amazing protections for children. 
unfortunately, it's never enforced. Right. Um, so this petition, you know, at 100,000 signatures, I could sit in front of Congress and have this discussion um, about why there are no enforcements um, for Captain 1973, which does provide a lot of protections for children. Um, so I would always appreciate any signatures and sharing of that petition that's on the very front page of my website. Um, yeah, yeah. A good resource for sure. I was going to say, so you mentioned your website. The book is called Cult Child. Where else can people find you on social media besides your website? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Uh, if you put, if you go to my website, you'll get all my social media. It's right there. LinkedIn. I'm very active on Twitter. I'm very active on Facebook. I'm active on Instagram and my personal website, uh, blogging and writing. So, right. So there's lots of ways to get a hold of you. And I was going to say, before I let you go, I don't know if you're interested in this, but we always have our mind shift zoom calls once a month. And this is like a group call. So this would be in the month of June. I know this is a ways off, but I'm booked out for the next couple of months. If you're interested, I'd love to have you come back and be our guest in the month of June. I can send you some dates and see if you're available. But would you be up for doing something like that? Absolutely. I'd love to do that. Thanks for the information. Okay. I will send you some dates and hopefully we can put something together for the month of June. And I would love oh, to have you come back. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity to tell this story. I yeah, I really appreciate story. it. It's the story of dozens and dozens of children, not just from Michael, from anybody yeah, who's so many. suffered religious trauma. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's true. You you definitely got something that resonates with a whole lot, far yeah. too many. Yeah, okay, well, I'm going to let you go, Vinny. I will see you hopefully in the month of June. And uh, thank you for talking to us, and we'll see you again. All right, thank you so much for having me, and thanks to your audience for taking the time to listen. I appreciate you.